Our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the whole of the chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Teach me your way, O Lord and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. Amen. Amen. A rather pompous-looking deacon was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. He stood at the front of the class and asked, Why do people call me a Christian? After a moment's pause, one of the youngsters looked around and said, Well, maybe it's because they don't know you. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with explicit hypocritical conduct. Explicit hypocritical conduct. We've seen in the last few chapters, all of this text is calling the Corinthians to an authentic Christianity where they had built upon the solid foundation of Christ uh, a structure that wasn't worth much. It was hypocritical, it was sort of based on the world's wisdom, and um, they were beginning to drift from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so Paul takes this explicit example and puts it in front of their face to sort of highlight to them the truth so that they could see it. In chapter 4, we saw how they prided themselves in riches and power and wisdom, leveraging the gospel to make them entitled kings and rulers of those around them, rather than servants and stewards of the gospel. They had had mission drift. They had missed the point. So he takes this example of flagrant sexual immorality to show them how hypocritical, foolish, powerless their congregation had become. Their boasting was not good, he said. Instead of admiring themselves, they ought to mourn. No amount of cream cheese frosting was fooling Paul. He knew that the Corinthian cake underneath was rotten. So this chapter is about how to be faithful. 
about how to love those who are in error. This chapter is about church discipline and what we can learn about it in practice. So bear with me. It's going to be a lot of fun talking about church discipline. Actually, it really is going to be a lot of fun. The reason why I say that is, is because Paul's aim is always to love his congregation. They were to live a new life under grace, but the Corinthians were getting grace wrong, accepting sin without correction. We do this. Churches all over the place do this. It's a dynamic we won't get into much here, but one of the, the, the types of phrasing that Paul uses, he's as if to say, you're arrogant and boasting, as if you are this church of great standing while you tolerate this wicked immorality. Uh, is it possible that you think that you're so gracious and you've, you've got this insider wisdom of the gospel so much that you can tolerate this amount of flagrant sin without calling it to repentance? That's a cheap grace. That's a cheap grace. And I will tell you, in our current climate right now, the churches that would proclaim to you that they are the most gracious and the most loving and the most tolerant are the churches that would let rampant, horrible sin, life-altering, life-wrecking, soul-damning sin go right out of their nose unchecked. Proverbs says the mercy of the wicked is cruel. The mercy of the wicked is actually cruel. But the mercy of God is gracious, and it confronts us in our sin and does not allow us to be hypocrites. Um, This text becomes an excellent resource, and this is how I want to sort of set it up, because I want to go through the entire chapter sort of using it and framing it out as a resource for Christians on how to beautifully do church discipline. I want to talk about what the point of church discipline is, and I think chapter 5 walks us through one of the most comprehensive ways a mature way to approach church discipline. So here's how we're going to organize it today. Just asking these questions of the text. Who, what, when, where, and why? If that's helpful to you, sort of make a framework. I think this text does answer those questions of who, what, when, where, and why as applied to church discipline. And let me pause for a second before we just think, here's a doctrine, just take discipline, chug it into the sermon. This is a life-giving. Because what God, what God has called us to is uh, a real following of Jesus. And so Paul has already kind of carved out. We're not following the world. We're not following our own wisdom. We're following Christ. And it oftentimes looks different than the plans that we would have for ourselves. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's the high mountain air of gospel living. It's the clean uh, life of holiness and wisdom and vitality in the church. And I grew up in a church not seeing a lot of discipline. Um, but I I did grow into my sort of my high school years, and I had genuine brothers and Christians around me. And one of the ways that they really turned my life and my view to Christ to seeing him glorious was calling out my hypocrisy as a Christian. I wasn't baptized uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a child, but I was baptized as a young guy, as a, as a Baptist. And they were saying, you're living contrary to your baptism. And their rebuke caused me to actually not turn away from Christ. Their loving rebuke, their investment in my life turned me to seeing, hey, there's actually more to God. God is not just invested in my right behavior like some frustrated parent. He's, he's invested in me, and he's changing my life. And I think this is what Paul is getting to. He wants, we want an authentic Christianity. So let's ask these questions of the text. Who, what, when, where, and why? Who, okay? Who is church discipline for? 
Who is church discipline for? Uh, Verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral of this world, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this this world, or the greedies or swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry and so on. Discipline is for Christians. Church discipline is for Christians. It is for those who bear the name of brother. Christian wisdom teaches us to spank our own kids. It doesn't teach us to spank kids. <laughs> right? right? Policing. I'm glad you thought that was funny. Or, or wheezy. Or is it just wheezy over there? Um, don't laugh anymore. I don't want to get you coughing. If we want to avoid sin in the world and sinful people, then Paul says we have to leave the world. Right? You can team up with Elon Musk and SpaceX and head out to Mars Try it there, but if you've read C.S. Lewis and Out of the Silent Planet, we would just take our sin there. Right? That's the point here is that church discipline is for those who bear the name of brother. For those who bear the name of brother. We'll learn a little bit about what it is in just a moment, but it is for those who bear the name of brother who refuse to repent. In other words, discipline is not for the unbeliever. The whole reason that the gospel is a commission for us to rescue those who are in sin. The church often gets this wrong. And we stand in flagrant hypocrisy because the perception about us is that we do not police our own and would rather police the world. Paul says we often get that flatly backwards. If you're in the club and you're in church membership, well, then you kind of get a pass because you're here with us. You're one of the good guys. But if you're out there in that old world, Right? I could get up and just machine gun down all the people in the world and the bad things that they do. But what's the point? It's not the point at all. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a position of coming to them in the name of Christ. Discipline isn't for them. In a way, they're already under discipline. In a way, they are already under discipline if they are separated from the Lord. Their testimony is not that of clinging on to Christ And in a way, they're already under the judgment of the Lord. And once sinners are in the church, you know what happens to them? They still sin. People come into the church, right? We've told them the gospel. We want them to turn away from sin and come into the church. Well, guess what happens? They still sin. And so often churches is sort of a a messy place. Christians, though, are defined and marked by wrestling with sin. Walking with the Lord and with their congregation, repenting and believing. And if a brother is struggling and he's humble, then there's no need for discipline. Discipline is for those who bear the name of Christ but refuse repentance, refuse obedience. Those who claim the love of God but are committed to a life in love with their sin. That's who church discipline is for. So let's not be on a hairpin trigger just to rush out and discipline the world. Or discipline everyone in our congregation for still sinning. Discipline is for the a clear example of brothers who will not repent. Brothers who will not turn. Brothers whose testimony is contrary to the testimony of Christ. They're leading a life of hypocrisy. We can't be severe towards outsiders and passive towards those who align with us. He's a terrible man, but he's a deacon. So what does this say about our disposition towards those outside the church who are in sin? At least for our Savior, his reputation was for going to them, dining with them. He was slandered as a drunkard, 
glutton. He was a physician who came for the sick, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Our disposition in talking about discipline is not to be so eager for discipline that we just discipline everybody. We are to engage the world. Paul even says, are you ludicrous? Are you just going to not associate with the world anymore? What have we called you to? No, go into the world, but be very clear by not taking the hypocrisy of calling that behavior okay inside the church, inside the gospel. That is not okay. So we'll look at a little bit more of this as we move on. So what? Who is church discipline for? It's for brothers who won't repent. What does church discipline look like? What is it supposed to do? Look at verses 3 through 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, What is church discipline uh, in practice? What does it do? Paul mentions to the congregation, speaking as an assembly united under the name of Jesus Christ. Church discipline speaks with the voice of authority because it is under the name of Christ. It is Christ saying, it is as if it's Christ saying, you are inconsistent with the testimony of my name. And you are handed over to the one you are truly following, almost like you can hear it in John 8, right? Your father is Satan. This is the one who you are really following. You are handed over to Satan. That is, if a person will not repent, you should affirm to them who it is that is their true master. Have you ever wanted to go out into your yard and take a spoon um, and scoop up for yourself a giant helping of dog vomit? Yeah, me neither. But that's what we're told sin is like. That's what scripture says. Like a dog returning to his vomit. And if you have, like most people, examine the sin in your life and in the world and It's uh, an accurate depiction of the pain and suffering and filth that it actually does to the people around him. It's a horrible, wicked, disgusting thing. But it's never disgusting when it's presented to us. The same enemy who charms us with the illusion of happiness, sort of that chocolate-covered razor blade, is the same enemy who right after we partake in eating it, stands next to you and mocks you to your face. I can't believe you ate that. You weak, hypocrite, foolish, guilty, tarnished. He's an accuser and a tempter. What a sour, horrific thing. But Christians, the reason why I bring this up is Christians are those who have an advocate with the Father. First John 2. We have an advocate with the Father. When Satan tempts us and we fail, and then he mocks us and accuses us, we are those who have an advocate with Jesus Christ the righteous. It's what we remember in our communion, right? We are holding on to Christ. That accusation comes all the time. And you know what's the truth about it? A lot of times the accusations are correct. The accusations are correct. Satan is speaking the truth to you. You are weak. You did partake. You are the fool. But we are those who have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And those who are under church discipline do not. That's part of the point. 
Those who are under church discipline, you are telling them that they are handed over to Satan. They are handed over to the accuser and he can batter them and bruise them and they have nowhere to go. Because their testimony is living outside of clinging on to Christ. They are not obedient to the advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that is an attempt to sort of squeeze them so much and to say, I I repent, I, I, I need an advocate, I have to have the cross. That's the Christian life. That's what repentance looks like daily. And to the person who gets, a brother who gets to such a point that he needs to be handed over, it is to ramp up that tension at such a, such a way to say, I am desperate for an advocate. <clears throat> what a delight as we confess our sin and have the assurance of pardon each time we gather that we have an Advocate, and one of the hardest fights of faith, I will probably, you'll hear me say this a lot, is to believe those verses in the Bible that assure you of your confidence before Christ. That is what faith looks like daily. Not listening to the advocate, excuse me, the accuser, but listening to the advocate. So to be removed is to be excommunicated. Literally, the, the Latin means you're removed from communion. At the symbol is that you're removed from the communion table. You are not allowed to come and take communion here at this church if you are a brother living in that kind of lifestyle. Because your life doesn't match your profession. So we will not abuse you of some false sense of security, but under the name of Christ, speaking as an assembly, it is as if the Lord is saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay, What's the point of this? The text says, so that they'll repent. What's the point of that? So that they'll turn around and, and, and get back to the advocate. Hmm. Discipline is for the potential restoration of the rebellious. So when? Okay, who? It's for the brothers. What? It's excommunion. It's removing from fellowship. When? When is the time for discipline? Verses 1 through 2. It's actually reported that there are several, excuse me, there, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man as his father's wife. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The situation here apparently with the Corinthians is well known. Word has traveled. Instead of boasting, it should be mourning. They've boasted, and we'll see this a little bit more as we go through. By the way, we're a third of the way through this book, which is kind of surprising. They are boasting in all sorts of giftings and teachers, and we saw that, but they would let this rot, flagrant rot, sit unchecked in their congregation. Their boasting was nothing. As we've already noted, discipline is for the unrepentant and not for the struggling or simply the one who has sinned past tense. Does that make sense? So if you've sinned, so have I. I hope there's a life of repentance in, in that for you. But if you've sinned simpliciter and act, a single act, church discipline is, is, is more of an ongoing commitment to an unrepentant lifestyle. Does that make sense? In other words, we're not gunslingers here slinging out church discipline cases anytime we see someone who sins. We would have a lot and fast by next week. It is for the consistent life of unrepentance. It's not for every little trifle. Discipline is for soul-damning commitment to sin. 
So taking our cues here from Matthew 18 on the time front, when is it time? Well, one, we saw from the text, it's time when it has become flagrant. Uh, there's become a reputation for their congregation. It has not been treated. They ought rather to have mourned instead of boasting. And then Matthew 18 says sort of a, a more practical guide is that if a person has sinned, uh, you should probably know this, but you would take it to them in confidence, in person. If they do not repent, you would take others from the church. If that pressure does not cause them to see and to turn, you would put it before the whole congregation. If they still would not repent, then you would treat them as an outsider. Um, the unrepentant brother here had taken his father's wife, and apparently no one did anything about that. Okay? We are not to be eager to discipline either to the outside world where we have no jurisdiction or to those within the church. The discipline should be a solemn and eternally serious affair. Um, the, the comment about jurisdiction there is Paul says later in the verses uh, 12, he says, what, what do we have to do with judging the outside world? Take that this morning. Um, I'm not trying to pull my punches at all from the world of sin. It's It's horrific. But we don't have any jurisdiction to go in and judge it necessarily as those who are under Christ. We are those who come to serve the gospel. We are stewards and servants of the mysteries of the gospel. The gospel is a mystery. We are inheritors, Paul says, of a ministry of reconciliation, right? The whole point is not to come out uh, guns blazing necessarily, but it's to come with the, the blazing guns of gospel proclamation, right? Christ has died for your sin. Yes, you are in sin, but turn to Christ, right? Not, yes, you are in sin and you will be burned. That's true outside of Christ. But the heavy hand of discipline comes to the hypocrite, the brother inside the church. It is really instructive for our disposition towards the outside world, really instructive for our prayer life, really instructive of how far our jurisdiction really belongs, Paul says the, the Lord will judge those outside. But you're called to be faithful to those who are inside. Okay. Where? Where are we to discipline? Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, um, not even to eat with such a one. All right. Our first separation from this person is, is at the communion table. Okay, it's where it belongs, where the separation belongs. But I think the question should come up, is our separation from this person, uh, we're walking down the sidewalk in town and we see them and then we just kind of scoot over across the street. Well, no, that's, that's not it at all, right? Second um, Thessalonians three thirteen through fifteen is helpful here. It says, "As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Okay, church discipline is primarily administered at the communion table, and not with your raised eyebrows, right? And not with your cold shoulder, and not with your hot gossip remarks, and not with your uh, not inviting them to your home anymore, and not with your total disregard. They're not just derelict anymore. They are brothers that we are calling to repentance, right? The judgment of God is judgment enough. Paul explicitly says they are not your enemies, and do not treat them as such. But table fellowship, 
not only a communion table, I think there's wisdom in table fellowship as if life were normal. That is, that is not the case. Wisdom would demand that there is a broken sense of fellowship, but they have not just become an, uh, infectious disease patients that we have to uh, avoid at all contexts. We want them to turn to Christ. And how does God deal with us? How does repentance come according to Scripture? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. To be truthful, it's God's kindness to remove you from the communion table because it's calling out your hypocrisy. Right? That is a kindness to someone not to uh, what Scripture calls on the prophets. It says, do not heal the wound lightly. Right? Jude calls people, uh, preachers, or those in responsible um, leadership that do not do this. He calls them waterless clouds. Right? What good are you? Do your job. Love them. Love the congregation, but do not let them operate under the lie of hypocrisy. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Um, it can be obviously be hypocrisy here. If we won't fellowship with the world because they do all these sort of grotesque acts in our mind, but we fellowship with brothers who do those things, that's flagrant hypocrisy. Do you see that? That's what was happening in the context. Say, I wouldn't dare eat with the world the, the, the way they act. Okay, well, Christ didn't do that. But we will do it in the church because it's too hard to rebuke a brother. Right? There's, there's the hypocrisy. There's the rub. That sort of thing happens all the time. So discipline is always happening. Right? Discipline, every church operates under church discipline. Um, so we either act truthfully and consistently, rejoicing in the truth and in sincerity, as Paul calls us, with discipline, and it restores or it confronts. It restores or it separates. Do you see that? Like if we said, as a church, let's not do church discipline because I, you know, it might not work out. No, any time we do it, it's always effective. The the brother either repents and we rejoice in that, or the brother is separated and we rejoice in not being hypocrites. Any time we do it, it's effective. Churches who choose not to do discipline for sin because they think that's awkward. It will cause waves. We just want to have a nice service. Put upon their congregation the burden of unrepentant brothers and sinners. Those are how churches get fractured. That's how you have poor leadership. That's how you have backroom deals and gossips. That's how you have a muddled Christian testimony. Right? You are always doing discipline. It's just a matter of who gets the discipline. If you don't discipline the hypocrite in their sin, you're disciplining the congregation. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody's going to get Discipline, we might as well do it forthrightly, and do it truthfully, do it according to Christ. So that's where we do it at the communion table, right? Not with awkward, um, passive-aggressive shrugs of the shoulder and raised eyebrows. Why? Why do we do church discipline? 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul alludes here, sort of his, uh, his illustration to them is the Passover and the festival, the feast of unleavened bread. After the Passover, the Hebrews were to search out any leavening agents inside their house, uh, anything that would ferment the, the, the dough, and get rid of it, right? It was a symbol of the corrupting influence of the Egyptians, of their gods, 
their leadership, their religious practice, just even the land itself. And they were going to be separated. Leaven, even in small amounts, has an oversized influence on the dough. That's sort of the, the parallel there. That's the, that's the point. It's a symbol of what sin can do. And unleavened bread was eaten for seven days while the Hebrews celebrated the feast of the Passovers. So in the same way, Paul says, he calls the Corinthians to search your house and get rid of the leaven. Okay, look into yourself, get rid of all the malice and evil, but keep the feast with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so there's the, the balance there. Get rid of the old influence, right? Get all that out of you. We are to present ourselves as a holy people. What we saw in chapters 4 is that we are the temple of God, God making his appeal through us. Right? We are representatives of what he is like, and yes, we are sinful. Absolutely. That's, that's sort of a given, although it's easy for us to, for, for me, to grow up my whole life and just thinking, you know, what, what's the rub? Not understanding that we're, we're still humans. Right? We're still under the curse. We're still sort of in this fallen flesh, but we're redeemed. Right? And our hypocrisy is when we tolerate it. Our hypocrisy, we, we embrace it. It's the exact opposite of our testimony. We embrace Christ crucified and the reconciliation that he brings. We don't embrace our sin. We wage war with the flesh. It's our enemy. We put it to death. We mortify the flesh. Okay, so he says, you're the temple of God. You're demonstrating to the world what God has done. And we are stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. So we are stewards who are to present to the world what God is like. So whose testimony? Uh, it, it must be what Paul says in sincerity and truth. We cannot say we're committed to God and committed to sin. We cannot say that Jesus has made us holy like him. And we can also do whatever we want. Hurting whoever we want. We can't say that Jesus died because of the weight. Listen to this. Jesus died because of the importance and significance of our sin. And we also don't take sin very, as a weighty matter. We take it lightly. What a ridiculous testimony to say that God had to die because of the weight of our sin and yet we just don't care about sin anymore. We cannot be hypocrites. Walking as a hypocrite is to walk in miserable, soul-tearing judgment, the illusion of security under the false comfort of lies in a weak church. Love rejoices in the truth and has ambitions of reconciliation, restoration. It upholds Christ crucified. So as we mentioned, somebody mentioned it this morning, which is more awkward, confronting someone over their sin or letting them race towards hell and hear the, depart from me, I never knew you. And we know this, right? It's just hard to apply here. If someone's driving towards a cliff and you know the cliff's you know, coming and the bridge is out or whatever, and you say, hey, you know, shouldn't go over there. It's, bridge is out, you're going to die. It's judgmental. Who are you to tell me I'm going to die? Well, the, the bridge is out. I'm just trying to be kind to you. Just letting you know the bridge is out. Shut your mouth, you bigot. I think at some point, right, you sort of just jump in front of their car and take their keys. And like, I don't really care what you think of me at this point. I don't want you to go to hell. That's sort of the posture here of church discipline. It's tough, tough to get yourself in that point. It's tough to see things that clearly. It takes prayer 
And it takes sin being really important. And so that was happening to the Corinthian church. Sin wasn't that big a deal. And it can numb your uh, senses to that. People can just get hurt. It can just be not a part of your life, but someone else is hurt. One of the best defenses we have as a congregation is seeing sin rightly, of smelling the dog vomit and going, why, why do we put up with this? Feeling the horror of it and the soul-damning nature of it and seeing the cross not just as God's remedy for it, but as the motivator of it. He had to come to deal with sin. It took the Savior dying. Sin is no light thing. He didn't take it lightly. We can't mock his cross by taking it lightly either. We are to be those who remove the leaven of sin where we see it. It's imperative but we're also to be those inside. And kids, I want you to hear this because I didn't see this for a long, long time. Paul says we're not just here to get rid of the leaven and then just kind of guard the walls at all times, sort of a, uh, sort of jittery, always looking out for sin. And he says keep the feast. Passover lamb's been sacrificed. Inside the house, it's time to rejoice. God has dealt with our sin. We're free from slavery, right? The Hebrews were coming out of, uh, out of, out of Egypt and they were just, should have been delighted and, can read Exodus and how much they grumbled about the fact. But we should be those who are keeping the feast. How ridiculous is it that as a minister this morning, I get to come to you who I know, if you're like me, you're sort of plagued with that inner turmoil and the accuser and be able to declare to you, you are righteous in Christ Jesus. Hold on to it. Hold on to your testimony. Cling to Christ when the world wants to pull you away. Let's keep the feast. It should be a room full and a congregation full of singing, not from the lips of hypocrites, but for those who are grateful for the gospel. Those who the gospel has changed their lives. It's turned us away from hypocrisy. It actually has power, Paul would say, to restore our fellowship, restore our lives. And by God's grace, we might have church discipline cases, but if we hold fast, we will see either the clarifying separation from the church upholding the truth of our testimony, or we'll see restoration from brothers. Things and situations we thought would never turn around. By God's grace, we held the line and spoke united in Christ and held them not up to the scorn of our comments and turned shoulders, but remind them of the Passover lamb. Let's be a church that keeps the feast, not remembering just the leaven. That's part of the ceremony. The feast is that of Passover, of Christ who came and died and rose so that we could live holy lives, consistent lives, redeemed lives, though broken, clinging on and empowered through him.